welcome to another episode of One Big Idea. I am joined today by the incomparable Verite, who I am so excited to have on, a near and dear friend, and really excited to be able to interview you today. Uh, Going to give a little bit of a background, uh, blow, blow a little bit of smoke. You know, so as an independent artist for the entirety of her career, Verite understands the need to adapt to the ever-changing landscape of both the industry and culture. Verite is an independent artist whose career has always been an exploration of how to create and build outside traditional structures, a prolific and spellbinding, according to MBR, songwriter, executive producer, and performer. Her independently released albums, EPs, and singles have garnered 350 million streams across all platforms with 1 million monthly listeners. Mic drop, Verite, how are we doing? I'm good. I, uh, I've had like a weird start to the day and that continued into my later day, but we're here and I'm stoked to be talking to you. This is a highlight. Yeah, well, great. It's a highlight for me as well. You know, I think back often to the first time that we met in person, which was in Times Square at NFT NYC, I guess like 18 months ago, roughly something like that, maybe a little bit more. Oh yeah. We met in like a hotel lobby. Yeah, it was a blind date. It was like a blind music first date. Time, like, yeah. It was the first time I met Susie as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, for context for the audience, uh, this was when I was at Venice Music. Susie, who's the co founder of Venice, uh, with the two of us met with Verite and Vanessa, her manager, to talk about you know, just broadly what you guys were doing in the space, what your plans were, you know, hoping that you would be interested in Venice. Um, and then you ended up coming over, which was super, super exciting. But it also started a long journey for us down Web3 and, and everything that, that we started doing together. So I actually would love to use that as a jumping off point because I do remember during that conversation, you talking about you know how you initially like got into music and, and really like the story of, of waiting tables like for 50 to 70 hours in Times Square uh, yeah. in order to be able to really sustain yourself as an independent musician. Can you tell that story? Oh, yeah. I mean, so I... I waited tables from the time I was a kid and I feel, so I started when I was like 14 and I feel like not a lot of things made sense, but like this, I had this innate like drive and ambition. Um, So I was like always a musician, always playing out. And then, but like I had no context. And so for me work, like kind of manual labor always clicked in my head and made a lot of sense where it's just like you do X, you get Y. Um, And so I, I really like, when I felt a lack of direction in my life, I really turned to working as that sense of direction. Um, it wasn't necessarily like fulfilling and, and meaningful, but it really did provide like a lot of guideposts for me um, and motivation. And so, you know, I when you met me, we were right near the Applebee's in Times Square. And so my last three and a half years waiting tables once I moved to the city, I grew up like an hour north of the city, was spent waiting tables at that Applebee's on 42nd Street. And at that time, it was when I was really more actively pursuing a career in music, again, still lacked the context for how I was going to do that. I had no foot in the door, but it was the first time that I was uh, investing my own money into it because I had spent all of this time with my head down, just like working really, really hard and saving money and not really knowing what for. And I always say that like the main catalyst for me kind of walking and, and really beginning my career is um, when I started to invest that money and have like this sense of risk. 
Yeah. And to that end, like, it's not like the opportunities weren't afforded to you to, to de-risk, right? Like you could have taken, you had plenty of opportunities to take major mm-hmm. offers. Why, why have you always, you know, kind of, uh, declined to, to take those opportunities? Well, I think initially my goal was to sign. Like I, it, my goal was not from the beginning to like maintain my independence and autonomy and kind of freedom as an artist. I wanted to get discovered and I wanted to get signed and I wanted to be that thing, you know, that I wanted to be. I grew up um, in, in what I like to call the American Idol era. So this idea that like one day I would be on the train and someone would look at me and be like, you got it, kid. And somehow would get like, magically discovered now i realize that that's bullshit um (laughs) right but there was that mentality and so the goal was to absolutely get signed and i released one song and one video and i spent like months really like weeks months emailing blogs trying to like get my foot in the door one blog wrote about it this blog called self-blown out of the uk which wound up being like some industry insider blog that all the major labels followed. And that got me uh, meetings with every major label out of the UK, every major publisher. I took a trip before I had management to the UK. I met with all of those labels. I met with all of those publishers. Um, And even in the beginning of Vanessa and I working together, the goal was to get signed. We took uh, meetings with every major label. We had a deal on the table that fell through a day before I was supposed to sign it in 2015, um, which is the best thing that ever happened to me. At the moment, it was the worst thing because I had quit my job at Applebee's and I was like, great, I got signed, I made it, right? This whole thing and it fell through um, because the A&R had a crisis of confidence, right? And I, you know, I had rent due in a thousand dollars in the bank because I had just invested all of my money into that first DP. And I really hit a crossroads of what am I going to do now? Right. It was, yeah. we could go reshop it to all of these other labels, but we, we weren't in a position of uh, good negotiation, right? Because something had just fallen through. So that didn't feel right. And so I told my team to give me a budget and I spent the next three months and I like worked my ass off and I made that budget and I invested it into that second EP. And that became the catalyst for really building out the project independently because enough time had gone by where I was starting to see the financial uh, benefits of having 10 million streams as an independent artist of, you know, starting to get college shows booked, which were for thousands of dollars, right? This idea of like, I'm sitting here working 12 hour shifts for, you know, anywhere from a hundred to $500, depending on, you know, the day and, oh, okay, this is actually worth my time to pivot. So everyone actually had an intervention and they're like, you have to quit your job. So they pulled, your team pulled you out. And my mom. My team and my mom, my mom gave me a book by Seth Godin called The Dip. Um, I don't know if you've read The Dip. I haven't. It it changed my life because basically it's like if anything worth doing has this trajectory, like it's good when you start, it gets really hard. And if you have enough determination, resilience and grit to kind of make it out of what he calls the dip, this like hole in the center, He's like, you're going to be successful. He's like, most people die in the dip. So essentially it's a book about, it's a book that tells you to quit. 
It's like, if you're not going to be resilient, if you're not going to do everything possible to get yourself out of this hole, just fucking quit now and go do something else that yeah. you're willing to fight for, that you're willing to. And I was like, oh, but I am willing. So I quit everything else. Um, but yeah, that book I highly recommend because it is a reality check. It's pretty brutal. The dip. Yeah, I'll have to add that to the show notes and I'm going to have to read it myself. So I'm curious, like in that process, when you initially went back to work, because my understanding, if I, if I have the timeline right, is that so the deal falls through. You ask your team basically like, what is the budget that you need in order to like be able to deliver? And then you go back to work to deliver that budget. Yeah. You're then being pulled, like you're then being told to quit again and you go like all in. How did you, how did you find a sustainable path? Because I think, you know, there's, there's often a perception, you may call it a, a, a misconception that like streaming in and of itself is not viable as a career. Like, and so how have you thought through, or how did you think through early on in like those early stages, how you were going to make a, a business out of this? You mentioned college shows. How did you really like get your start there? So, you know, for context, again, like I don't come from like money, right? So, you know, when I was 18, I signed like a a drug front deal. It like wasn't a real record (laughs) label. Like they never released music and like I did, but it was for $5,000 and it was the most amount of money I could have ever conceptualized seeing, right? So like that's my baseline for like, wow, that's money, you know, like I'm rich. Um, So then pivot here, you know, the budget that my team gave me was $12,000 that I had to go and essentially make. And, and I, and I talk numbers because I think in the music industry specific, no one, everybody tiptoes around numbers so much that nothing is transparent. Um, So nobody has a context for what it actually takes to do things. Uh, So I'm very conscious of like how I talk about numbers and figures, et cetera. But it was essentially $12,000 that it would take to pay all of the producers up front, which is something I've always done, uh, pay for the mixing, pay for the mastering. And I believe it was to fund a tour that I wound up taking in a minivan around the country. Um, and so those were, and whatever artwork we did, et cetera. So like that was what was encompassed in that budget. And so I, I went in those three months and I made that money. Um, and I was kind of slowly spending it. And I quit before the the project was really financially viable before my first streaming check came. But it was like, okay, there were enough positive telltale signs that something had was brewing here. And I think the universe was just waiting for me to take the step. And once what, what I did- What were those signs? What, what signs did you, did you see? I mean, we just had, it. we just had like, again, like, 10, 15 million streams and the tour I went on in that minivan sold out. And, you know, kind of after, after having that experience, it was really hard to justify going back and spending all of my time, you know, waiting tables. Waiting tables. Yeah. And and granted, I wrote a lot of music while I was waiting tables. um, (laughs) And the transition from waiting tables to being a creative was uncomfortable for me personally. Um, But it like it was just hard to justify going back and then i got that first streaming check which at that time in 2015 the narrative about streaming was this doesn't pay and this will never pay and it's ruining the music industry but for me i was like well i have no other point of access especially now that i'm not with a major label so i'm actually going to embrace streaming i'm going to embrace spotify i'm going to embrace all of these other ways to do things 
um, wholeheartedly. And so I did. And that first streaming check, I was like, I can, you know, make four EPs, essentially, you know, or make two EPs and live on the rest. Like it became um, this sense of, okay, this is actually, I can work with this. I can make something out of this. And every step that we've taken, me and Vanessa, who, you know, we've been together for the last seven, eight years, has really just been one foot in front of the other, learning as we go, exploring as we go, but really having this kind of um, determination that we can figure anything out as we do, so long as we remain kind of flexible and then maintaining our own autonomy and the freedom to fail and the freedom to pivot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're going to dive into... You know, all of the the freedom to fail and experimentation because I feel like you've been not feel I know that you have been a pioneer in a lot of spaces, particularly Web three, which we'll we'll definitely dive into. But I'm curious, like we've we've talked a little bit about you know you you haven't always um, there's not every platform that you embrace, right? Like not and I, I don't know like if you've updated your stance on like TikTok and doing things there, mm. but it seems like you have had like a, well, maybe just give me an update as to like, how do you feel about social platforms as a means to like bring a new audience to, to your music? Okay. So I feel like TikTok, especially, I actually am not anti any specific platform. Mm -hmm. Um, what I, right. Because I believe that each platform satiates some sort of cultural appetite for consumption of art content, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but what I dislike is, um, this idea of dependence on platforms and marketing strategies becoming use of the platform. And I think we saw a lot of that on TikTok and this idea of, okay, the, this wasn't my case, obviously, because I can do whatever the fuck I want, right? But the, the only marketing strategy any artist was hearing be on TikTok, do TikTok, right? And that's not a marketing strategy. And what we're seeing is that TikTok has essentially peaked, which we all knew it would, every social platform does. And now it's wholly oversaturated and the connections that you know, you're able to make aren't as meaningful, aren't as direct. And this is not my quote, but it's, it becomes like music has become the wallpaper of TikTok. And we're kind of forced to dumb the art and ourselves down to the most palatable bite size instance in order to garner any sort of attention, just yeah. eyes on you. And I think that I don't really have a desire to do that. I have a desire to challenge people and I have a desire to create like visceral and intimate experiences with and for people. And so I'm on all of the social platforms. Like I exist everywhere. And then I just do what I want when I want. And I, again, it's like, I, I see a massive ceiling and disservice that social platforms do to the artists and creators on the platform and the audiences that consume that art and that content um, by essentially making the experience shitty, by gating the content that you're getting, by force feeding you ads, by trying to have a limitless scale without really uh, like executing their core mission, which should be to serve the people who use their platforms. And so I think for me, I just don't wanna be platform dependent. Yeah. 
No, I think you've made decisions to ensure that you won't be. And you mentioned, you said something around like creating these intimate, you know, settings with, with your, your fans, you know, at a lot, at a time when a lot of artists are going really big, right? Like their, their entire, uh, campaigns are focused on how do we get the biggest streaming numbers? How do we get the biggest reach with TikTok? The marketing is dictating the creative. You've gone a very different route and you've gone very intimate and you've built like a dedicated community. What led to you wanting to really establish a direct relationship with your fans? And and can you speak through like the evolution of, of what that's looked like? Yeah. I mean, I've been doing it since the beginning. And so I think part of it is just like, essentially core to my personality yeah. um, where these sorts of one-on-one interactions, meeting people on the ground where they're at is just what I've always done. And I think it's because I find it to be like a really immense privilege to be able to make music and create art. And I always want to um, serve the people who allow me to continue doing that. Um, and, and I think, for a while, everyone was kind of faceless. You know, you're, you're interacting with people on social media. They're just numbers. And that first tour that I did in that minivan where I was able to sit with these people and see them in real life, it was just like, oh, no, like this is so much more than just like, yeah, the numbers are nice. They're a really nice ego boost. But there are real humans on the opposite end of these things that are resonating with things that I'm writing that and they're getting like an emotional value out of it that maybe I can't even feel as I'm writing it. So for me, like it's just been a desire to really make those people feel seen and heard. And so, for instance, like one of the kind of pivoting moments was right around the time that I had stopped working at Applebee's, I was so depressed because I literally didn't know what to do with myself. So much of my life had been, you know, mechanical manual labor for hours a day. Um, I didn't really ever have time to think or contemplate or, you know, I was just on a hamster on a wheel and uh, I was going to the post office. And so I just tweeted out, Hey, I'm going to the post office. Does anyone want like a letter? And I wound up, you know, having to set up an email address and I collected 500 names and addresses and I spent like literally a week handwriting letters to people um, and sending those letters out. And so I feel like that sort of like guerrilla direct to fan relationship building has been something that's just like inherent to my personality, but also feels like something that I can rely on when I feel really disconnected, when I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing or why I'm doing this. It's the only reminder you need that like, oh, these are like real people who find value in what I do. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's beautiful. And I have to imagine that you got writer's cramp like (laughs) after 500. I remember that. Yeah, it was like painful. And I'm a lefty. So as I write, like this side of my hand was like black from yeah. dragging your hand across. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, that's that's brutal. I, I wrote like thank you letters at actually at Venice and I wrote like 20 of them. And I remember at the end being like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm never doing this again. So I can't imagine. Can mass print these at Staples? Yeah, seriously. But I mean, what you said is really interesting about like 
it can be when you're playing this numbers game that you're you're almost like creating art into the like faceless void right of like this like horde that hopefully is like getting bigger and bigger and you're seeing the number go up but it can like lose its humanity if you're not like sitting on on the ground floor and actually you know sitting with your community and getting to learn who they are what what like major learnings have you had just like having a direct relationship with your community? Like what, what things would you not have found out about how your, how your fans are interacting with your music or what they're looking for, how they find value in the relationship mm. that you wouldn't, you wouldn't otherwise. <sighs> I mean, I think the core of my fan base are a lot like me, which maybe is a narcissistic thing to say, but like I interact with them a lot. Like you come to a Verite show and it's like, a clear vibe like people are quiet and you know i'm quiet for the most part um but i feel like what i learned from just maybe it's not even what i learn i think it's what i realize interacting with real humans is that having a community or like a fandom isn't just like an endless pit of money that you need to extract as much out of that relationship as you can and i think that we see that a lot. I mean, we're seeing it with all of the Ticketmaster things and these massive tours and artists selling merch for $300 and all of this. It, it, it all starts to feel very extractive. And artists, you know, who are multi-billionaires and millionaires, right? Um, and I think that that kind of feeds into this relentless capitalistic system where ultimately, like, the fans, while they love the music and love the person, it, it starts to feel a bit one-sided. And so I think that it's it's not dissimilar from how I feel with socials. It's just like more isn't always better, yeah. right? Quantity is, is not really better than the quality of the relationship that you're able to build with people. And there's definitely moments where I, I you know, want more of the quantity for sure obviously right we're trying to build we're trying to scale but i'm really trying to do it in a way that like honors the individual that yeah. kind of comes on the journey with me um and it's really hard to start fucking people over or kind of taking advantage of their admiration for you or their love for what you do when you're on the ground with them and i think i've been on the ground with my fans and my community in the way that i have been because i didn't really have the luxury of putting on a persona mm -hmm. in the beginning it's like i was not the person i was today i i am today I'm, i was like cagey as fuck. like i i couldn't walk in a room like i was so awkward um you know i i really hadn't entered into society <laughs> at its fullest <laughs> it was just like Again, I spent a lot of time waiting tables. It is a different like world. Um, and so for me, kind of coming into this more like social, I have to be Verite the artist. I didn't know how to fucking do that, right? And so yeah. for me, it was like, I didn't have the luxury of being the bigger thing. And so I really committed to just like having a transparent process and being messy as fuck in front of people. Um, and you know, we can go on about the regrets or the shit I would do different and all of that, but ultimately like where it's led me, I can't really complain. Yeah. Well, let, let's lead into that. And I'm curious, maybe we start more with like how you think about managing expectations with your community where they do have that direct line to you, because ultimately like 
some things should be off limits. Like sometimes you want to get away for the weekend. Like you're not always available, but they feel like you might be like, it's, it's a real challenge when you, when you open yourself up like that. So yeah, one is how do you manage those expectations? And then just generally some, you know, things that you would have done differently along the way. If I could do differently along the way, I think that it's one of those things where I couldn't have even done it differently. I just had no sense of self. Right. Yeah. And so I, I was really externally um, searching for my own identity. Right. And like, I would just be where I am now, where I'm very clear on who and what I am. And I'm very clear about what I do. And I'm very clear about the art that I make and the business that I run and how my brain works. And I wouldn't have taken a seven year journey to like getting there. But again, that was a bit inevitable. But to to your comment on like managing expectations, like I love a good boundary. Like <laughs> I, have, I really have zero problem setting boundaries and yeah. having clear and honest communication and dialogue. And like when I tell you how minimal problems that I've had with people crossing those boundaries, because I also have very little tolerance for the boundaries being crossed. And so... Yeah. Like it's like one cross and then I'll just fucking block you from the discord or I'll block you from <laughs> socials. Like, yeah. um, I think that I, I feel very comfortable giving a lot of time and space to people. And I feel like that time and space is really greatly respected. Um, and again, it's like my, my fans are the best and I really appreciate the fact that they maintain the boundaries. So whenever I have to like peace or whenever we do like a meetup or among us and I'm like, all right, cool guys. Like I'm done. It's just like, all right, cool. Have a good night, you know? Um, and so I think that just like being really firm with the boundaries that you do set and being like, Hey, this is, this is where my line is, is important. And then also creating really realistic expectations and being yeah. upfront with them. I think that, people over promise and under deliver. And I very much am the opposite. I am constantly under promising. And then I'm able to kind of surprise and delight people as I go and, and do cool things that people aren't expecting. Um, but I never want to be in a position where I promise something and I don't have the time, energy or desire to kind of fulfill it. Yeah. I mean, I got to see that in person when uh, at the Future Wave uh, conference where you spoke with Susie and then afterwards, oh, yeah. you know, you performed and you were able to invite some people from your community to join. And I'm sure that was like a, a nice surprise and delight. And then you took pictures with them and they were all very respectful. They were all very much in the front, like glued oh, yeah. to, to your every word. It was it was amazing, amazing to watch. So there does seem to be that that deep level of, of respect um, and, and really like it's showing love and appreciation in a, in a respectful way. And I'm, I'm sure they also like self-moderate and police at this point. Like you have people that have been in that community for a while. And so I'm sure it's, you know, they, they hold each other accountable at that point. For sure. And it's like every once in a while we'll get like attacked by bots on discord or something weird. <laughs> will happen. But it's such like an odd, like everyone just comes together and we're just like, that was so weird or like that was so strange. You know what I mean? And then we address the problem and then it just like moves on. And so, again, it's like I think that I really value 
the humans who kind of are, are in it with me on the ground level. And then it allows me to do cool things like that where I can, oh, I'm doing this free show. Why don't you guys come along? Or the other day, um, we did a meetup in Washington Square Park where Baghead, who's uh, on, on the album cover with his hands tied, and I sat in Washington Square Park and gave away free roses on Valentine's Day. And a bunch of fans wound up coming through, getting flowers, taking pictures with Baghead. My favorite was... Um, the dude who brought his own bag and sat and put a bag on his head next to Baghead. Um, but it, it allows me a lot more freedom to do that because there is trust, you know, with these people. By the way, when I, I was looking at that on socials prepping for the interview and all I kept thinking was like, there's no way a cop didn't come over and just be like, Oh, we have to um, yeah. But it wasn't, it was the, like the park trooper and she yeah. was like, are you selling anything? And we were like, no. And then she's like, is this artistic expression? Cause I guess they have whatever their litmus test is. And I just pointed yeah. at him and I was just like, clearly. <laughs> uh, oh, but yeah, they made us move a little bit. They're like, you technically can't be in the middle of the walkway. So move okay. too fast. And I was like, thank you, ma'am. Happy Valentine's day. Happy Valentine's day. I'm going to chill here with bad guys and some fans. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing yeah, sketchy exactly. going on here. Uh, well, cool. Let's let's move on. I really want to dive into just your general ethos with experimentation because it is something that I've always looked up to, and I feel like a lot of artists could could learn from and and how your what your approach has been. And so, you know, what has been your north star in experimenting with like new technology broadly? Like, what are you hoping to get out of it? What are you hoping your fans will get out of it? Um, I think that. I've always been really quick to just try things yeah. right, and learn and pivot. And I think that that process, the process is the North star. Um, and then everything that comes after is the byproduct. But I think for me, if I'm going to remain independent and if I'm going to really be playing my own game, then I need to like, utilize all of the benefits of that, which is really um, the, the flexibility that comes with that. And I think that what that's allowed me to do from the beginning, even right, if we're looking to experimentation with fully embracing streaming, which again, in 2015, major labels weren't really doing, right? right? They were so slow and everyone was saying that it was killing the music industry. And I was taking meetings with Spotify and number one on new music Friday, which got me millions and millions of plays. Right. So like I was kind of like, Oh, okay. I see the hurdles that I'm going to have to walk through, going through the traditional systems, going through down a traditional path. And then I see ways in which I can circumvent that path. Um, with the flexibility that I have to try things to either succeed or to fail and to learn from that and then pivot really quickly. And so that process is something that really hasn't changed. Because again, it's like when I started this project, I really had no concept for how to build a music career. So everything was just let me try, let me learn, let me see what I need to do different. And I really just have continued doing that throughout my career and then kind of landed at a point in 2020 where obviously COVID hit 
everyone's world got rocked. I, you know, I was canceled 10 days into a 40 day tour, which was awful. Yeah. Um, and I had a lot of time to kind of sit in like, what was the wreckage of my second record cycle? Because effectively that stopped that record cycle. And I was like, man, okay, I've done a lot of, you know, pivoting and, and all of this and the, you know, how I've built my career up to this point has worked and been really great, but I actually can't keep doing the things I'm doing and survive. And it was a really scary point. And so a lot of 2020 was spent throwing shit at the wall, trying to figure out um, what I wanted the next five, 10 years of my career to look like really. Um, And, you know, I started a podcast I saw it. I was going to ask you, are you going to bring it back? I think I'm bringing it back. I think we're going to do a second season that's really based on the release of this record. Awesome. And the process of it. Um, But it's just been a bit crazy. So I haven't had the time to fully delve in. But right, I started a podcast because I was just like, oh, I want to have I want to have conversations about um, how artists balance the creation of their art and building the business and facilitating more transparent conversations around that in the music industry because those conversations don't really exist. Um, I was like building virtual worlds for fans in this app called Gather. Um, so like 8-bit video game uh, EP release party where you know we built all of these different little rooms and there are Easter eggs. And when your avatar moved close to another person's avatar, a zoom screen pops up and you can like see them. Oh, wow. So I basically had like a hundred people following me around this like little eight bit game. Uh, so we were trying stuff like that. Um, and then it kind of all dovetailed in, Oh, the podcast talking to RAC and Blau kind of led me to more curiosity about web three and all right, what are the possibilities of this technology in, you know, maybe creating a new value for music or playing with the value of music? And I really dove in without knowing much. I, I called Vanessa and I was like, hey, I think we should try this thing, right? I have an in, right? Yeah. And so I got my in um with zora back when they were invite only in 2020 and then i just released an nft and it was the same thing i didn't know i wasn't hyper knowledgeable but i was really intrigued by what i was seeing rac do with tape um i think there was like a minute where he had the world's most expensive cassette tape it was like ten thousand dollars um and i was like wow that's interesting and was talking to Blau, you know, back, it was when he was gearing up to do the, his album launch, um, of which like I was on one of those songs. And so I was like, okay, this is cool. Right. Like we'll, we'll experiment. And I think for me, like that's opened a whole separate, like wormhole of my career, uh, that ultimately feeds back into the center, but also has created like a complete, you know, side channel of curiosity and, you know, a space for my brain to play. Yeah. To, to that end, like, where do you place Web3 in your career? Mm. Like, in terms of, like, the entire Verite project and vision, like, where, where does Web3 fit? 
So it's interesting. I think that in some ways it's really separate. And, and I think that I saw the separation immediately when I started experimenting and the separation made me feel uncomfortable because mm -hmm. I very much felt like I had an interest in exploring blockchain and what are viable use cases for the technology. And I think a lot of the culture of Web3 um, was almost undermining the project that I had built in this traditional way, in the sense that fans didn't care. And if anything, if fans did have a thought or a care about it, it was of a negative sentiment. And I think that really early on, it forced me to kind of segment the world a bit, yeah. um, but also became a really interesting creative challenge of how do I um, create viable value propositions for fans where it's not a negative experience, that the technology becomes a value add, mm -hmm. and then having to do that at a price point that is affordable and again, not gouging because we don't look to our community to just extract as much money as possible from them. Um, while at the same time, on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, scarcity and high value is also one of the main use cases of the, you know, blockchain technologies, the, the, the creation of digital scarcity and the idea that music is free and ubiquitous for all to listen to and experience but can be rare to own and create a much higher value for the asset. And so how can I be selling, you know, at the time I was selling NF, like music NFTs for like $20,000. Yeah. Right. That's not accessible to the fan base. And so it really became a balancing act of how do I serve my community, utilize this technology to build experiences and value propositions for them um, that are accessible without then undermining the value creation of trying to treat my music and my art like fine art and, mm -hmm. and in that value and in that category of, you know, rarity. Um, and so it's been really interesting. And I think that finally I've struck a bit of a balance with that really just, you know, having, worked with, you know, people in companies to kind of build out the experiences on both ends. Yeah. Can you talk to some of those experiences that you have built out? Yeah. I'll, I'm, I'm going to backtrack really quick by just sure. being like the first NFT I sold was like one ETH back in like February, 2021. Right. I was just like that. Why? <laughs> that was my response. <laughs> the second NFT I sold was for five ETH in like March, 2021. And again, I was like, why? And I wound up talking to that collector and very much patronage was the reason why, which pivoted me to, okay, well, fans are never going to pay 10 K for a song like ever. So I did a master percentage royalty share for my third NFT by now, uh, which I did on Zora, which I did by auction, no reserve on any of those. That's just what people paid from their own volition. Right. And 
the master royalty ownership was my first attempt at creating a value proposition that would merge over into the fan sentiment of like, Mm -hmm. you're getting something tangible and physical out. And a fan actually did buy that. Um, Granted, it was a fan who's like deeply like in, he's a developer. So he's very in this world. Correct. But from there, I started working with Chris and Ryan at IYK and a lot of their focus, which it is still their focus, is bridging digital experiences into the physical realm. And I kind of came in with like this opposite perspective. I'm like, yeah, but how about we tie the physical realm into the digital, you know? Like we we need to go back because for people who are already in this world, who are already into NFTs, um, a lot of them don't did at the time didn't care about the physical. They didn't care about the IRL. They didn't want the physical momentum. They're right. they're yeah. here. They're here to proliferate like our identity and experience within the metaverse, mm-hmm. etc. And again, this is also at the time where like land on Decentraland was selling for t- fucking millions of dollars, right? Yeah. So it's again, those sentiments weren't bridging out, but where what I saw is, okay, but from a fan perspective, fans already have behaviors and experiences IRL. They go to shows and they buy merch and they do all of these things. How do we tie that back into the digital? And so a lot of my work with IYK was starting to build out concepts for that and so we started chris and i took a lot of walks during the pandemic we lived super close to each other and we would just walk for hours and he showed me like the very first deck of iyk and i was like this is brilliant like i'm sold and i was going on tour um for some of the shows that had gotten canceled we kept the sold out shows so i was doing this mini tour and i was like frustrated that one of the promoters had gone under and I didn't have access to the years of audience history that I had built with that promoter because they took it with them, you know, and I was frustrated that I didn't have that information. And so we built what is like the pilot of their guest book, essentially. Well, they built it. I helped concept it. I didn't build the technology. Um, I am not a developer, Um, but Chris and Ryan are, and they're brilliant. And we essentially, piloted the guest book on tour and i mean chris drove to a show and was like walking around with the disc to try and get people to tap it because it was a little less creepy that way because you know and we were really trying to figure out okay well you can prove your attendance at a show you can claim a free nft um if you want and essentially you can leave me a message so if you don't want to do any of that Essentially, there's still like this baseline value proposition for you of like, you get to enter your email, I get your email, you get to have a little experience, you get to leave me a message. And if you want to, you can claim the NFT that proves you attended. And so that was the base concept that then has kind of proliferated out into the crewnecks that we did. Um, which obviously IYK has been crushing it in kind of continuing to build out these experiences um, for other companies, other brands and other creators. And I think from my perspective, the idea of just adding a bit more value to existing behaviors for fans, like that's how you onboard people 
en masse. And the question really becomes, well, why are we onboarding them, right? And I think for me, it's the desire to not be platform dependent. And right now, as artists and fans, we're all platform dependent, right? We only get to connect, we only get to have relationships so long as the platform's algorithm allows us to see what each other are doing. And so what I think the long-term use case for all of this technology is, is cutting out the middleman and demystifying the black box of data that exists in all of these platforms and all of these systems and allowing fans to be rewarded directly by artists for taking actions and being loyal and um, long-term fans. And so a lot of my focus has really been on that kind of accessibility. And then on the flip side, being like, you know, I've been pricing all of the NFTs at five ETH and three, the first three songs on the album sold for five ETH. That's great. There's the fourth one. Temporary is still up. I haven't really been promoting it though. If anyone wants to buy temporary. If anyone wants to buy it, it's up. It probably won't be up for long. There you go. Um, but this idea of like, how do we create this long-term value um, in every tier from the That's high value scarce? Yeah to the free, you don't have the money, but you're participating within the ecosystem, you should also be rewarded. Yeah. And to that end, it's, I mean, I love that your focus is on the value for the fan because the narrative, particularly like early in NFTs was, you know, this is so great for artists. This is so great for artists, which like, obviously like we're all for, right? Like we we want it to be great for artists for sure. But the, you recognize this very early, like, the great for artists patronage model is not a mass market model. Like no. there are some people that are in a fortunate position to be able to support and, and send the five ETH and, and, you know, they feel in the same way that they would collect art, that that is what they want to do. But for most people, it's like, well, what is this doing for me? And we shouldn't make them jump through hoops to be a fan. Like we should be, you know, adding additional value. So that's why I really love the guest book because to most people, it doesn't feel like crypto at all. And it shouldn't like, it's just like, oh, I get to do this action that, you know, I want to take, like, I want to be able to, maybe I get like a nice little collectible and I want to be able to write a, a note to, you know, one of my favorite artists. And so I, I love the stratification of value and that's enabled just through blockchain technology, instead of trying to like retroactively fit something to blockchain just to use the technology. Yeah. And I think that in all of the hype of everything, I think a lot of people, a lot of people said a lot of things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things were said. Yeah, a lot um, of things were said. <laughs> you know, but it was really funny. I remember being in like a Twitter space because God, ha we have all lived on Twitter spaces, oh, especially yeah. in the pandemic. My God, like the clubhouse days, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> but I remember like being in the car with my mom like on a Twitter space and my mom was, and, and everyone was just like talking about how like all of this was gonna change the world and all of this. And my mom was just like, do they not know that this shit existed in the nineties? Like, <laughs> and it, like, like they were just talking about these concepts and my mom was just like, there's a lack of like history in the building that people are saying. Yeah. And, and, and for me, I was, I found that really interesting. And so I feel like my position in this wonderful wild west world of web three has been like extremely deliberate and pragmatic. 
Oh yeah. Sometimes to my detriment, right? Because I, I my my role is always poking holes. Even like if you if I get brought, I've gotten brought on to like advise on a few things, and literally I say I'm just going to poke holes. Yeah. In 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 everything, because I think that that is the way to build something that's really really sustainable. Is you poke all the holes, and if that shit's still standing then it is a viable product. And I think that we've seen a lot of viable use cases. And that's why I'm so excited to like work with people like Chris and Ryan, because I feel like we've had so many conversations where we are just sitting and poking holes in each other's ideas. Right. And being like, Hey, I think you're wrong. And this is why I think you're wrong. But that really pushes us to a place where like, I, I do all of that and kind of have the perspective I have because I want to see this succeed. Um, but it's not great for the hype. And I understand that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I mean, to that end, there are just different products for different people. Like there, there are hype products, there are speculative products, there are real world utility products, um, that make sense depending on where you sit and like what your, your ethos is related to, you know, web three. It's, it's something I've always found interesting. Maybe we can use this to kind of get into a conversation on additions with Web3 mm. because it's something that up until very recently you decided, you know, you were going to do one of ones, basically your like digital fingerprint, your Mona Lisa's up on the blockchain. And then recently you dropped with this uh, in the lead up to this record, Love You Forever, uh, additions on sound. So kind of like what went into that process? Yeah, I mean, I've, I feel like I've always been transparent that like i'm gonna set my strategy and then i'm gonna adapt it um i think that initially why i stamped my strategy of like really focusing in on the two pillars of like on one hand uh scarcity high value and on the other hand essentially like behavior-based accessible um, drops via guest book and via the crew neck, et cetera, um, was because in the market crash, I saw something that I didn't, uh, understand, which was every, it felt like everyone started pricing everything down because no one was buying. Yeah. Right. And so there was this scramble of like, Oh, well, I'll just price down. I'll price down. I'll price down. And the more people priced down and then we started getting into free mint open editions. And I was a bit confused because I was just like, guys, music is already free. Right. right. And, and so yeah. for me, it, it was really asking the question of, is this a better system? Right. Or is there just fear because there was a lot of money here and now there's not as much money. And so in my reaction to that was, I'm not going to go where I see the trend going Mm -hmm. because I don't believe that that is the better system that we're all looking for. And I feel like giving away or selling NFTs as a means of building community, I'm not sure I understand. Um, Mm. I don't necessarily think it's a better way of building community. Um, I think it's uh, like, the NFTs become a different badge for that community, where as somebody who runs a community, I'm now going to be able to see who collected what 
NFTs, and now am going to be able to reward those people better. But we're all still using Twitter and Discord and all of these various platforms. And so for me, I was like, all right, let me take five steps back, watch it all play out, and then really distill, well, okay, why am I here? Because like, I'm not necessarily here to sell NFTs to get you to enter my community. You can enter my community for free on Discord. Right. Right. And so those are these kind of um, competing motivations that I've been balancing because I can't charge one person just because they're willing to pay an ETH. And then what now I'm going to have to start charging my fans. So, yeah, it's a challenge. Like I see these, like the free meta as the equivalent of a web three cookie. Like I think people Mm -hmm. that are doing it one, one it's for awareness. Like, yeah, I I distinctly remember an artist, Miles, did like 21 days of music NFTs on sound, like day after day after day after day. And if you were a collector, like you couldn't miss it. And I remember hitting up Coop, like, who is this person? He's like, oh, yeah, like I'm actually working with him. (laughs) There's a reason why you see him every day now. um, And you actually like have awareness and he was able to cut through the noise. So I I get it in that sense of like, okay, it's a way for you to like reach a new audience um, and like introduce them to your music. But that already kind of exists in like other mediums. So like, I don't know that like blockchain needs to, needs to be the reason for it. I do want to keep moving because I want to make sure we dive into the record. And I know we're, we're close to time. So love you forever. Uh, It's your third studio album. Is that correct? Third studio Mm -hmm. dropping on February 24th. You've described it as a record about loving someone so much you murder them and drag their body into a lake. So my first question is who hurt you? (laughs) uh no one hurts me more than i hurt myself Um, no this is a record that was really born from you know having my legs really cut out from under me you know in a lot of ways i think that um you know i had i had a relationship dissolve in a way that like really became a uh a catalyst for processing what felt like an endless wave of grief. Right. Um, And it just like wouldn't stop. And it was this year and a half of just being like, I can't be feeling all of this about this one specific circumstance and like doing a lot of self-reflection, doing a lot of therapy and discovering, okay, no, I'm actually processing a whole litany of shit in my existence that like, I just hadn't tapped into yet. It became the yeah. tap to to all of that. And I, re- I wrote the record about what it was like processing that and learning how to let go, learning how to let go of people, learning how to let go of experiences, learning how to let go of like pain and all of this. Um, and, you know, what what it takes to do that, you have to like kill off some parts of yourself and you have to, you know, cut off some limbs that are holding you back in a lot of ways. And the, the whole visual concept became the padding for all of that hyper vulnerability, which is so fucking uncomfortable. So essentially I built out this like a 24 horror movie. um, And in lieu of doing music videos, which like as a culture, no one watches music videos anymore. Um, essentially made it like a a moving graphic novel. So each song has its own scene and its own visualizer. And it was also thinking of like 
also what would make really great NFTs as well. Because again, if we're viewing NFTs as like the digital paintings of the yeah. record, I wanted to make these scenes in a way that they can exist without the music and still be really beautiful. So they're just like moving these moving images essentially um, that represent each song of the record. And so it's a bit brutal. The story takes us, it's a kidnap and kill for sure. And I do drag his body literally into a lake. Um, oh my gosh. So you do get to see that, but I'm really proud of it. A lot of this record was me reclaiming my, um, you know, creative autonomy. It's like, I taught myself how to produce in COVID and, you know, I sent most of these songs to mix, which was a really wow. cool experience, you know? Yeah. Congrats. Thanks. That is, that's amazing. I'm well, one. So you mentioned like the, the like graphic novel, if you will, where, where are people going to be able to watch that? Is it like on YouTube? Like where, where are you gonna be able to see it? It'll be everywhere. It'll be everywhere for sure. And then I think we're still trying to figure out the best way to showcase it. Um, and I'm definitely gonna, I want to figure out a way to showcase all of the one of ones and sell them as one of one NFTs as well. Mm-hmm. I feel like super rare. It feels like the correct path for that. Um, and, and just really focus on like the high, high quality, but then, yeah, it's going to be cut up and literally everywhere. Um, but also we'll be on a playlist on like YouTube channel, all of my socials. Yeah. Amazing. Well, how, how have you looked to push the experimentation to like a new level with this? Is that something that like you go in, you go in with the mindset of, of like, all right, I want to, I want to try something new here. I'm like really interested in this. Like, is there anything that like you really gravitated towards besides like, you know, I, I know you did the additions, uh, anything yeah. else from this record that's like new that you hadn't done in the past? I feel like it's not as new in a lot of ways. I mm. feel like, I feel like I experiment in the ways that I do, but I don't do it for the sake of it. No, right. Never. And so yeah. I feel like I really started this record out. I feel I feel like I wrote a piece on it and put it on mirror. of just like, I'm making a record. This is my strategy. And then <laughs> I really, up until this point, really adhered to the strategy because yeah. temporary was a song the the addition that I did, I, um, there's 460 versions of temporary that exist because right. we did, we built the production in, in a way that allows for, uh, all of those unique combinations. And so utilizing, um, we have the one of one that's for sale on catalog for five ETH. And then these sound experiments, uh, are going to exist on sound as additions. And I, um, I'll probably do this at some point on tour. I've just been so swamped. I'm going to send a Google doc to all of the collectors of temporary on sound. And they're going to help determine the price and rarity of the next sound experiment. So I'm curious, like if you have that NFT, it's like, cool. You want me to sell it for the same price? Do you want me to give it away for free? Like, what do you think is going to be the thing that makes yours more valuable? Do you not care about the value of yours? And start to really kind of try and understand this middle market, because I've been so focused on, you know, the peripheral pillars. Yeah. Well, I just love that. It's like, you go deep, and you don't do things for the sake of doing them ever. I mean, to to your point (laughs) earlier, it's like, you could have made a fuck ton of money in Web3 if you wanted to just like, 
So like just basically following the meta, whatever it was, like following every wave. You've never been a person to follow a wave. Like you you set the trend and it's it's really remarkable to watch. Thanks. I, I definitely have moments where I'm like, man, maybe I should have. I could have made a fuck <laughs> yeah. money. But again, it's like I don't want to make money in ways that don't feel good and, and yeah. that I don't think serve me as an artist and, and don't serve me as the project. So for me, I'm actually happier to kind of take this way. And who knows? Like, Temporary is the first one of one that hasn't sold. And so I'm just like, maybe I will pivot to additions. Maybe we will get on a call and be like, what do we want to do for the rest? So again, it's like everything becomes a learning opportunity where we can sit and be like, hey, maybe we're pivoting away from this platform. Maybe we're pivoting away from, you know, the market being like equipped to handle this, et cetera. And so, all right, cool. Maybe we'll take a pause, reassess, try and do something different. And that's kind of the beauty of all of this is you don't even have to be locked into your own strategy, but you have to be locked into it enough to like see it through to like understand what you did correctly and what you fucked up. Yeah. It's like have your North star, but be comfortable pivoting in how you get to it. Right. Yeah. So just like thinking through that and like being, being flexible enough that you're comfortable changing the plans as, as new market conditions arise, as like people's wants and needs arise. Uh, so no, that's, that's super cool. I'll, I'll be really interested to see how that continues to develop. Same. Um, <laughs> well, before, before I let you go, one, uh, we ask everyone who jumps on the show what their one big idea is. So this can be anything. It can be like a mantra. It can just be talking about the record any idea that you want to leave the audience with and then be sure to plug uh, where people can find you and, and we'll wrap it up. You can find me at Verite on basically anything. Um, I do answer DM sometimes more so on Instagram than Twitter. Um, what is Alpha. my one big idea? Um, God, that's, I think for me, it's really just like, Whatever you're building, build it to be able to do whatever the fuck you want so that you don't have to have your trajectory and success and momentum dictated by another human. It's the perfect place to end it. Verite, this has been a true honor. Uh, Very grateful to call you a friend and thank you so much for jumping on One Big Idea. To everyone listening at home, catch you next time. Thank you for having me.